Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Kurt. And this is our review of Barry Lyndon, starring Ryan O'Neill. Marissa Berenson, Patrick McGee, Hardy Krueger, Gay Hamilton, Leon Vitale, and Michael Nordgren. Written and produced and directed by Stanley Kubrick based on the 1844 novel The Luck of Barry Lyndon by William Makepeace Thackeray. Released in 1975 on a $11 million budget, grossed $31 million worldwide. So, Kurt, we continue our films of Stanley Kubrick retrospective here. And I venture to say this is not one that people think of when they think of Kubrick films. And most likely they don't think of it in a positive light. Well, I was, yes, yeah, so I was definitely thinking that after I watched it again, which is this movie is very unusual amongst the Kubrick canon, which is that it's right in the middle of his most famous and influential period where he is making these groundbreaking films that at, they're adding to the cinematic lexicon, you know, in ways, you know, that no one had ever seen before, like 2001, Clockwork Orange, and so on. And then he, he makes Barry Lyndon, and really, nobody ever talks about this thing. Even in the this awesome Kubrick box set they did in around 2007, they did tons of interviews with film historians and filmmakers going deep on each movie from 2001 to Eyes Wide Shut. They didn't do, they literally didn't do anything for Barry Lyndon. Even they either forgot or deliberately left this, <laughs> left this one out. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I'm sure Ryan O'Neill's happy that they did too, because he says this ruined his career, though, let's be honest, oh, that's not the only reason. But <laughs> I mean, I, I, he's not entirely wrong. He really didn't get a lot of looks after this. And this was a guy that was as hot a Hollywood star in the seventies as you could get coming off love story oh, and yeah. all this other stuff. And I mean, he was, you know, hunk of the day and, but got cast in this period piece and it did not fly. I talked about it last time with, with the clockwork orange Kubrick was working on this Napoleon film and he didn't get to make it. So he made a clockwork orange instead. And then he used a lot of the research he had done to make this film, but he set it in a time period that I venture to say not a lot of people outside of Europe remember or know anything about. I mean, I grew up in America. We never talked about it. Kurt, you ever heard of the seven years war before growing up in Canada? I hadn't. And I'll be honest, when I was doing my notes for this, I kept typing out Napoleonic war. And then I had to go back. It's like, no, no, wait, it's not Napoleonic war. A seven years war. Cause like, yeah, I literally had never heard of it. Yeah. It's very different. And I'm curious to what led him to this story. And I did a little digging and apparently he, when he was reading books, trying to figure out what he wanted to do, because that's how Kubrick always starts with these movies, we know. He read Barry Lyndon and just was blown away by it. Like he had read another one that he, I think called Vanity Fair that he thought was great, but there's no way he could make it into a theatrical film. But he read Barry Lyndon and he realized like, yes, I can make this story into a movie. And on the surface, I kind of get it. I mean, I'm not going to read the book and I've I read a little bit about it online, but the story's pretty much the same. I mean, Kubrick changes it like he always does with things, but it's a kind of a self-contained piece, but it sort of happens in the midst of all this other stuff. And part of me wonders if it was just more of a, I've done all this research on what that era of history was like for, you know, the British and the French and all these other people. And I, I need an excuse to stick that in the movie. Yeah, it's, it's, it's too bad about, uh, what happened with Napoleon? Because 
Yeah, because I know he was dead set because he's a big, he's a huge history buff, and he would definitely wanted to have made that movie. He was going to make it with Jack Nicholson, who this would have been before he really broke big with Cuckoo's Nest and Chinatown. So, but he liked, he really liked him and stuff like Five Easy Pieces. So that, and I know that whatever he had in mind would have been good because like his attention to detail was ridiculous in this. Because I, as I understand, he had an index card for every single day of yeah. Napoleon's life. As I understand it, he even if it was just one line. But he wrote some down, so he had a record of like you know uh, what he'll what he'll make this movie out of. He had scenes in mind of like there was some battle involving uh, ice that was like a part of his that, that didn't go well. So then he would flash back to the first time uh, Napoleon as a child was like slipping on ice or something. So he he hadn't he re- I would have killed to see what that movie was. Apparently, someone published a book. Maybe it was Warner Brothers with those index cards or something. It was like a thousand dollars or something. I would love to take a look at that, but it is too bad. So. So I guess you know this weird situation where Kubrick doesn't get his way because a completely unrelated movie called Waterloo came out with Rod Steiger that bombed, and Warner Brothers said we're not touching Napoleon, even though it's you know it's public domain. You can do whatever you want. It's you know doesn't cost anything to you know to make this story. Uh, but they bailed, and Kubrick. This is kind of the. Uh, I don't. I almost want to say sloppy seconds. Like this is the the movie he couldn't. He couldn't do the movie he wanted, so he made the next best thing. And he still gets to put the Kubrick stamp on it. I mean, he spends nearly a year shooting it, another eight months putting it together. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the final duel scene was like forty days of editing, and I watched it, Kurt, and I'm like, I I don't know, forty hours. I mean, I don't know how you took forty days <laughs> to put that together, but okay, uh, we'll talk about it when we get there. But yeah, I don't know. It, and it's it's one of these that just happens in the middle, like you say. You've got two thousand and one, and you've got a Clockwork Orange, and then this happens, and like right before The Shining, which you know, is, and it's like, man, it's it mm-hmm. is the odd. Duck. It's like the band that you love and know that puts out hit after hit album, and then they release like an album of Icelandic covers or something. And you're just like, I don't, I don't like. You guys just went there on tour and fell in love with it, and you don't. You know, a lot of times these movies get made in their vanity projects for like an actor or something like that. This seems like the vanity project for the director. And at this time, Kubrick would have been in that spot where he could have pretty much called his own shot, except for Napoleon. Yeah, he, I noticed that when I was doing, just looking up his, you know, resume the other day, and it struck me that I was looking up his Oscar nominations. He was nominated for for this film. He was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and there's only one name. He's the only producer, and he's the only writer, and he's the director. So this really is completely his vision. Like I think that started with Doctor Strangelove. He was the producer as well as the writer, and um, that's why his movies are all so I don't know about similar, but they all you know they they come from the same stock. So yeah, it's sort of the redheaded stepchild of the Kubrick canon. But ironically, it was a it, it was a success. It made some money, and oddly enough, mm-hmm. it is the biggest Oscar winner Kubrick ever did. Uh, it won four Oscars. What was it? It was best cinematography. It was best, best art direction. Score, I believe, was and that. best yeah. best score and, and best. I'm pretty sure best costume design. So it won it won some Oscars, and I guess it would have been. And it won a couple of other prizes. Like he, he won a couple of best director prizes, like New York Film Circle and stuff. But uh, but yeah, again, this is a movie that just kind of. People just don't talk about it. They do in the UK. I find if anyone who tells me they like this movie, they kind of tend to be British. And I could see why, because it is very much part of that world. And it, it does it in a way that it never explains itself. So as an American who you know, only took a few world history classes in my life, like I'm just at a loss for understanding 
the rules of engagement here and all of this hmm. stuff and sort of what this life was like for you know, this Irishman and, and all that he goes through here. Um, we got to talk about John Alcott though, because we mentioned he won uh, Best Academy Award for cinematography here. And this is like Kubrick's eye for years, right? He shot all the, you know, the, the iconic stuff. Um, and it, I, if anything's remembered for this film, it's the cinematography, I want to think. Right. When I first saw this movie was when I, my first semester in college, I saw it in 2013. It came with my Kubrick Blu-ray set. And uh, at the time, my initial reaction was simply that I, I kind of hated it. I thought it was boring. But even hating it, I couldn't deny it's like, and that movie looks good. Mm-hmm. The way it's shot, these, these insane zoom outs where we start on someone's face and the camera just pulls out and out and out. You get this epic wide shot with like, you know, a giant mansion on the right, a lake on the left, and our characters in the foreground, you know, there's other characters walking in the foreground. Like, Kubrick is clearly a big art guy. There's plenty of shots in this movie that look like they came right out of, you know, an uh, 18th century painting. Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, and these are shot on location. You've got England, Germany here, and, you know, Elstree Studios for some of the interiors, but a lot of the exterior stuff are actual castles, you know, with, you know, real hay flown in from this, you know, I mean, it was that kind of detail that this guy had on a film. And by all accounts, that was the case of this one as well. But I don't know. You know, this one, man, I I barely remember ever seeing it before. I know I've seen it before, though, before this review this time. But because I remembered the story pretty well, because it's not that there's not that much to it, honestly. But I also yeah. remember it being really long, and I don't know that I like saw it on one sitting. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't watch it in one sitting for this review either. And <laughs> and I'm I don't know. I just I I know I'd seen it somewhere along the way, but I don't know from where. It was just one of those moments like. People talking about you got to see this, and I watch it. And I'm like, so what, you know? Because I think I've seen it done mm-hmm. in other ways, and it's more interesting in some ways. But I guess I guess that gets us into the plot, though, Kurt. And I'm gonna keep this high level because I expect we'll drill down into this. And also, because again, I think the through line of the story is kind of simple. So. Redmond Barry, played by Ryan O'Neill, sees his life go completely upside down after his father is killed in a duel. So Barry, a young Irishman, is nevertheless determined to be nobility. So after a few years, he enlists in the British Army, fights in the Seven Years' War, deserts the British, is captured by the Prussians, becomes a spy, a con artist, eventually worms his way up the social ladder, culminating in his marriage to a wealthy countess, Lady Linden. Barry takes on the last name of Lyndon, and after his stepson is killed in a riding accident, and Barry kind of loses his mind on his, uh, or no, excuse me, after Barry's youngest son is killed in a riding accident, and Barry has already lost his mind on his stepson in a public way, he's humiliated, he descends into grief with alcohol, and ultimately, all of this unravels his social standing, his relationships, and his financial stability. After losing a duel with his rival stepson, Lord Bullington, Barry's offered a small amount of money to leave and defeated in every possible way he accepts and goes back to Ireland to never return into England again and to fade into history forever. And that's uh, the high level summary of the movie. There's lots we can get into. So Kurt, let's just dig right in. And we start with the, you know, the opening title card and this music, this classical score the whole way through. And we get to see a duel and we're already put into a different situation because this movie has a narrator that lasts the entire way through. And that's Michael Nordern. It's a voice you'll recognize from a lot of British television, cinema, and, and stage. And I thought this was going to be like the introduction narration, and then it would let the story tell. Michael Nordern basically reads this movie to us because, and I want to say, <laughs> and it's because Ryan O'Neill sucks and cannot act. Yeah, it's 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 a third person narrator, which is something you really 
don't get and it always stands out. Like I remember watching the movie uh, Little Children from 2006 and it has a very distinct third person narrator. He's not in the movie and he reads the movie like it's a nature documentary or something. And yeah, this guy, it's like he's reading it like it's yeah, like it an really, audio It's like watching a living painting with classical music and somebody's narrating a couple of episodes of Dynasty or something. Because that's really what goes on hmm. here. And look, I, and I'm not trying to be mean to Ryan O'Neill, but not a master thespian. And why they thought he could handle this. And by all accounts, he and Kubrick absolutely did not get along on set, and you can almost tell. He cannot handle the character arc of this. It would have almost been better if you let Ryan O'Neill play like the younger version of Lyndon, and then you recast him at like middle age and maybe old age. I don't, I'm just, hmm. you know, spitballing here, but it, it, this man cannot carry the whole weight of this. When he's a young kid who falls in love with his cousin Nora, cause she's throwing herself at everything that's coming by. That's another thing we're going to talk about in a second. Um, I buy it. I'm like, yeah, that's Ryan O'Neill's. He's in love story. That's what he does. He's the pretty guy. You know, he's in the soap opera. But when he has to do all this other stuff, like, I don't, I don't buy it. Yeah, because yeah, he's Jamie Lannister there <laughs> trying to marry his cousin, and uh, and Ryan, Ryan O'Neill. You're saying he's a bad actor uh, in this. Well, well, one thing is for sure. I don't think he does anything to make this movie better. And I can't. It's one of these things. I can't tell. Is it him or is it the character? Because one thing I see people say about this character is he's very unique for just movies in general. He's a protagonist that is just completely unlikable. It's like this is not a guy you want to see uh, succeed. It's like I was watching, you know, as I was watching, it's like, you know, with this guy, we're basically just tracking this guy's whole life, various jobs. I think, oh, it's like Forrest Gump, but without any of the, uh, charm whatsoever like what if Forrest Gump was a guy you actually you know borderline hated because he does some pretty scummy things along the way too it's like almost like he's the, he's the villain of it of, of of all the stories of the lives of the people he meets he like he's the bad well, and guy. that's the thing is he doesn't necessarily start out that way but what you realize about Barry and, and it's in the, an early sign is when he's you know wandering to this town and it's after he's had the duel and we, we could talk about in a second but he sees the British army and he's filled with envy because he sees these men have steady income. They look regal. They get all the respect when they march through town. And so he's a man who's caught up with envy in like every possible way. And we got to talk about this whole relationship with his cousin, Nora here. Okay. Because it, it's <laughs> one of her own relatives that says she's throwing herself at every man that, you know, is free here and, and hadn't been able to land one yet. She plays this little game where she hides her ribbon off of her neck and her cleavage and makes him like hunt for it. And if he's being real nervous about it, <laughs> but he's also so melodramatic with it or whatever. And this is just another one of those things that like, man, everybody that wants to bang on Kubrick for the way he treats women in stories, this is case, you know, <laughs> part 42 of yeah. why, because now this <laughs> lady Lyndon actually gets a little bit of a story later, but this lady gay Hamilton gets just short shrifted as like this little hussy basically, because she, what she, we realize is that, you know, the British captains come through now and he's bringing in, you know, a lot of money. Uh, a month, and that's going to really, you know, bolster the family stock and all this kind of stuff because they're basically broke. And he's, she's done the little ribbon game with him too because he pulls one out of his pocket and throws it on the ground. So he knows. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I don't know. Like, did we need that? Like, it would have been one thing if like they were sort of star crossed with each other, but they were both trying to deny it. And, and then there was drama because of it. But the fact that she let him on and then found a better option makes her seem so awful. 
Well, it does. I wonder if it's somewhat deliberate because this this origin we have in this you know um, small Irish town, where even though everyone's costume probably costs you know thirty thousand dollars, I get the sense that this is a low class, uh, almost backwoods town, and that like a very blue collar type town, and that, like Barry Lyndon is a very blue collar guy amongst uh, you know uh, the European uh, society, so he's a real you know. Hard scrabbling uh, bastard. Even the you know the back of the on the DVD said calls him you know an Irish rogue. But he's yeah he's also he's he's always trying to get respect. I was watching the thing guys like he's like a he's like a walking Rodney Dangerfield bit. Every 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 where he goes like I can't get no respect. Like and also I was thinking in this day and age of of you know people were being challenged to a duel. I was thinking you know you'd have to be a real ass to go up to someone and literally say you know you've insulted my honor. So I'm. You, uh, so I challenge you to a duel. So it's like, well, what kind of an asshole would do that? And it's like, well, Kubrick gives us a movie. It's like, this is the kind of guy who who does that because he he he, he does that a couple times. That's uh, the uh, that's a uh, that's a solution. Yeah, he throws the uh, glass his, at the guy uh, at dinner, life. and of course, you know, Quinn's not going to have any of this because he doesn't have to. He's worked his way up into rank, and he's you know someone of some stature, and he knows by. And let's face it, Nora's very pretty. So by marrying this girl, it's definitely out of his league. But he knows he's bringing a lot to the table, and it's a good match financially for everybody, and yada yada, all that kind of stuff. But he's also like a cowering wimp too, and to the point that we'll learn later, like he and Barry duel, and the rules of dueling are very interesting here, how they fluctuate because they they're standing at ten paces, they both you know cock aim and fire at the same time, and you know whoever lives lives, and we see him go down, and what we find out later is that they loaded up Barry's dueling pistol with just a bunch of twine, so that so that it would hit him. And the guy would fall, yeah. but we found out he was so blown away by it that he just like, he was in on the joke that like, we're going to load this up with a fake. So when he hits you, just act like you go down, but he passed out because he was so freaked out. It took him <laughs> like an hour to wake up. I was like, what a total wimp, you know? And I, and I get why she would go with this guy because of the financial reason, but that even undercuts her more and makes her like more deplorable. And I just, I'm maybe that was the times. I don't know. I wasn't there. But it, the way Kubrick plays it off is it's almost like an excuse for Barry Lyndon to go be the half-cock jerk he is. Because the reason he runs away is he's afraid he's going to go to jail for murder. And, of course, he can't do it. So he takes his mom's last 200 guineas and gets robbed on the road. But he hangs onto his boots. And that's when he sees the army and decides, I'm going to join the army and I'm going to be somebody. Yeah, that's, that's one thing about Barry is that he's a guy – when we when we meet him, he's yeah. not necessarily he's kind of sort of unemployed. If he's a farmer, we don't really see what he's farming. I mean, he's kind of a failure. And, and throughout this entire movie, uh, until you know the the you know the, sort of the second half, he can't he never nails down a job. This guy this guy really does not know what he wants to to do with his life. And yeah, he's just kind of a dick. He's like you know it's like I don't know what I'm going to do. But if anyone I, I I don't know what I'm doing. But if anyone gives me any shit over it. I'm going or, to challenge him to a duel, just to a, you know. Yeah, or even just, a fight. Like, he, he sent to fight in the Seven Years' War, which was Great Britain and Prussia against France, Austria, and Russia. And while he's in training or his regiment's moving around, he asks for a cleaner cup, and this other guy makes fun of him. So they're going to have a bare-knuckle fight. And all of this, like, seems to be set up for the fact that Ryan O'Neill was like a Golden Gloves boxer when he was younger. And so clearly he knows how to do it. And I, the funniest thing, though, Kurt, <laughs> Watching this fight scene, I've seen this redone recently, and you're never going to guess where. The CW show Riverdale. Hmm. 
They do a, they do the same thing with the Archie character. I won't totally spoil uh-huh. how he winds up where he is, but he ends up in a bare knuckle boxing ring, and he has almost the same. I mean, down to the choreography. He the guy's swinging wildly. He ducks under him, hits him with the same two punch combination, knocks him down. I'm like, holy cow! Somebody watching Riverdale <laughs> saw this movie <laughs> and decided that that's what we've got to go for. <laughs> yeah, and uh, except the kid on Riverdale could outact Ryan O'Neill all day. Uh, <laughs> KJ. Appa uh, is his name, but I mean, really, I'm, I, I'm. That's what I'm resorted to watching this. I'm like, I'm watching this Kubrick film, and I'm thinking about friggin' Riverdale, and that that's where we are because this is the only like it's it's the only <laughs> thing I can lock into because again, he gets a little bit tested. It's like Marty McFly getting called chicken in the Back to the Future sequels, and he has to do something stupid to prove his manhood. <laughs> that's exactly it. This is a guy. He's just. He's got a massive chip on his shoulder uh, you know, or something. What is it? Inferiority yeah. complex. He's, but he also he like wants things time. that he doesn't want to work for. That's the thing is you talk about like Barry doesn't know what he wants to be. He knows exactly what he wants to be. He wants to be rich and famous. So he basically wants to be a YouTube <laughs> star or, or a Kardashian. Like he wants to be famous yeah. for nothing, you know, and just be rich and powerful. <laughs> and he wants to be somebody of nobility, but he has no like noble traits. And not that everybody that was noble had traits, but a lot of them worked very hard and were, were good stewards of those opportunities to maintain it through the decades and centuries. He's done nothing for that, but he just craves it because again, envy is his downfall. Yeah. He's a guy who craves respect and he doesn't like, he doesn't like people that get respected. Like that guy, the, you know, Captain Quinn or uh, at the beginning of the movie, it's like, you know, he's like, Barry doesn't like him, uh, but you know, he's probably actually a, he's actually a pretty, he's a decent guy. He's, he makes decent money. He's probably a good soldier. Like he's every, he probably, he, Barry's the only guy who can find a problem with this guy. And, you know, I love that his problem is that, well, no one, no one, you know, screws my cousin but me. Right. Well, I mean, he's good at playing soldier, at least. Like, we yeah. never understand if Quinn's ever actually been in a battle. Sure. And the way he reacts in the duel makes me think he's one of those guys that, like, rose to rank before they ever had to really do anything for it. Sure. And then kind of got out or got onto, like, the political side before he had to go actually fight anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't, I don't know that it's not in the movie. I'm just reading it that way. But I, I agree. He's not a bad person. As a matter of fact, he's rather forgiving because at any point he could walk and go like, I don't need you commenters and just you know, walk <laughs> away. And he threatens to a few times. But I think he also actually really realizes like, I'm not going to get anybody better looking than Nora. And I'm, you know, <laughs> this is a pretty good situation where they're going to worship me the rest of my life. Why would you walk away from that? <laughs> I mean, you know, he's the same. It's the same thing that Barry wants. So I nice. get it, and I don't. I don't know. I just I read it that way. But we we go along with Barry now. He's in the army, and he bumps into his old friend Captain Grogan, who was his second at the duel. Who finally tells him after they're drinking and playing cards one night that, hey, you do know that was all a ruse, right? Like, thanks for signing up for the army for six years, kid. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, that makes it makes uh, Barry look like kind of an idiot. Like he didn't think because he just <laughs> he trusted all those guys because they were his friends, mm-hmm. and clearly his friends had no respect for him. But but you know like he didn't think to like check the body. He didn't notice that there was no blood. Makes him look like he just took their word for it and he went off. But it does make Quinn, it makes Quinn look like a loser for not willing to commit to that duel. But at the same time, it makes him you know he's you know, I think Quinn's a little bit smarter because you know he knows. Barry's the guy where it's like, you know, this is the only situation I can get out of a fight uh, uh, unharmed. Because if we, if he wanted to have fisticuffs, I'd be dead. Right. And he also knows if I let you stay around here, there's a good chance Nora's going to 
leave me for you or cheat on me with you, which would be embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not going to, I'm not going to put up with that from you. Cause who are you? You know, it's very much society and classism going on. And I think that's what Kubrick's trying to get at him. He's got a big statement about it at the end that we could talk about, but that's what's being said up here. But Barry doesn't get much of a taste of war before he's kind of done with it. And it's his friend getting shot that does it. And I mean, I don't know, you know, much about like this time of era of British warfare. This is one of the reasons the holding the colonies didn't last long, man, was because they engaged in what the time were rules of engagement. You keep marching forward to a certain point, you stop and you start shooting. And people that wanted to defeat you just decided, nope, we're just going to shoot you from every direction and we don't care. And, you know, when, when you have an enemy that goes against your own rules of engagement and doesn't play by those rules, you get gunned down pretty quick. And Grogan gets shot and dies on the battlefield telling, you know, Barry, you can have my last hundred dollars here, basically, but that's all I got. Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's a good point to bring up. Uh, this movie is obviously not a very, uh, you know, action centric no. movie by any stretch, but when it, when it does, like that, that fist fight scene where like the camera is like we're inside, like I love how they film that they form this ring of guys. Anytime someone falls down, they just pick them back up so we can mm -hmm. start fighting again. And the, get, Kubrick, Kubrick gets really, uh, handheld in there. Like he knows how to do action stuff, uh, whether it's in a clockwork orange or anything else, but, uh, and, so any moment of warfare or action in this movie is uh, is pretty well done. Like that whole that battle scene with that was probably a scene Kubrick. He probably already had that exactly in mind when he was going to do Napoleon. Yeah. So that, that's one. Like I, I love the way that scene is shot. Like it, you, you can feel the epicness of what warfare looked like, and also the ridiculousness of the, you know, no one no one thought to go hide in the trees uh, until you know. Uh, you know, Declaration of Independence. Right. Well, and you know, obviously that wasn't true, but that's what we know from history. And I think what. Yeah. What Kubrick excels at, along with Alcott here, is setting these scenes because it is gorgeous. I mean, I know we're undercutting a lot of the acting and sort of the drama of this as being really melodrama and kind of cheesy. But when you, if you just watch it and if it was just music underneath it, like it was just a silent film, no talkie, it would almost be interesting. You know, I don't know if it'd be interesting for three hours, but it would at least be more interesting than when they actually engage in dialogue. Because it's one of two things. Either they get to the point really quick and then the scene's over, or they sort of beat around the point for eight minutes to finally never get to a point. You know, there's so many scenes of that going on. But it always looks great. So it's a beautiful-looking thing that doesn't really work thematically. Kind of like Prometheus. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. That That, that is, I mean, that is my my number one complaint about this movie. Even... When, you know, th I think there are some good scenes in this movie. I think, I would love to think, I think Kubrick would probably say that, yeah, the, the, the story and characters and completely took a back seat to everything else. And that everything else, the costume design, the art direction, the, you know, the, the, the lighting of using completely natural mm -hmm. candlelit light like it would have actually been in the 1700s. All of that is as good as it can possibly get. Um, it, it's just too bad he didn't spend that amount of energy on the, on the story. Although maybe he would say he does. Cause I've heard some people say, I've heard some people say they find, uh, this movie, uh, hysterically funny. Like as funny as Dr. Strangelove. And I, I want to, I want to see. What I think maybe movie you watched it with a group watching. of people and you were doing like a mystery science theater 3000 on it or something. You could find like humor in it. Cause there is <laughs> some really bad acting in it and there's some just ridiculous looking stuff. But unless you're making fun of like clothing and things that you have no relation to, there's no humor <laughs> in this movie. This movie is cold, Kurt. 
this movie is cold as ice, man. And you know, Kubert gets accused of being like disconnected and cold a lot too. This movie is really cold. Oh yeah, yeah. That's 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 one of Kubrick's thing. You know, it's fuck. Yeah, he started that with two thousand one. It's just ice cold, mechanical, clinically clean type stuff. Um, and yeah, that is a problem with this with, with this movie because Clockwork Orange, like I said, Barry Lyndon himself is a pretty. Uh, he's one of the most unlikable protagonists in a Kubrick movie, and that's saying something. When in his last movie, the protagonist who was extremely likable was a you know, rapist and murderer, but he was so charming in a certain way that he was fun to watch. Whereas Barry Lyndon, where I, I, again, I still can't tell if it's intentional or not. He is, you know, he's just, he's not fun to watch because of the way O'Neill's playing him and because of the things that his character is doing. And, you know, it's just a, he's just a lovesick puppy. Tough to like. That's kind of the whole, I mean, at any point in his life, you could say that about the Barry Lyndon character here, at least the way he's played. And that's what makes it so hard to latch into. And you know what was different about the coldness of A Clockwork Orange or 2001? That was coldness that was brought about by advances in technology that had gone awry in one way or the other. Either it made us so dehumanized in 2001 that... We we trusted the artificial intelligence too much till it became worried about its own self and you know did what it did, or you had the post-apocalyptic world of a Clockwork Orange where we're we're more worried about what's happening off planet and we're just going to kind of let everything down here just go and we'll see what mm-hmm. happens and so it but that there was some like there was still some way to tie into it right because there were at least one or two characters that were still in the real world and felt things and could talk to you there's no one in this movie to latch to like outside of Barry Lyndon it is his movie all right if we're not connecting to him who are you supposed to connect to because the most likable guy just got shot in the chest and died so he's out of the movie 30 minutes into <laughs> it what what are you going to do i mean the and and what we see about Barry is that he joined the army for the wrong reasons, right? He joined the army for the fame and glory and realized that he did that on a false premise anyway. So now his one reason to maybe stay in is dead. So he, he catches two officers, which this was bold in 1975. These men are obviously in a relationship with each other. And one is telling the other one, I've got to go back to the front for a little while. No, I don't mm-hmm. want you to go. You know, they're having that whole bit in the lake together. And he's like, you know what? I'm just going to steal your uniform and your messenger bag. And I'm just going to act like I'm delivering these. And he just takes off. Yeah. Again, Barry, he's uh He's, you know, he'd be a good thief or a criminal because he's just, he, again, he wants all this honor and respect, but nothing he do is respectable. It's like the best idea he can come up with of how to escape his troubles is to basically, uh, what's what's that word? There's a term for it, like uh, stealing valor, where, where yeah. you, you, you dress as an officer to try to get respect. He's not doing it for respect. He's doing it to, uh, you know, just to clear the front lines. But uh, yeah, it, you know, that's. That's how he. That's how he does. I do think we do come, bump into a character here for a little bit, though, that I like. When he's on the road, he's trying to get away, and he bumps in to this Captain Potsdorf, that's played by Hardy Kruger, yeah. um, who is a he's a part of the Prussian Army, which we'll learn that like the Prussian Army, the officers were. Prussian and honorable men, but most of the regular army were made up of like vagabonds or people that they had bought from other countries or people like Barry that they find are deserting and they give them a choice, die or fight for us, you know? 
And so you, you meet this guy though, who meets Barry and he, at first, Barry kind of passes his test about, oh, okay, that's where you're going. Sure, that sounds right. Okay, well, why don't you, you know, spend a night with me? And again, and by that, you know, let me put you up in an inn. We'll buy you dinner, you know, give you a good, you know, hot meal here on the road. And Barry goes along with it because, he again, he can't control his own impulses to be around royalty, nobility, to be treated like he thinks he deserves. And if you get enough liquor in him, he obviously can't lie well enough to figure out what he's talking about anymore. And they figure <laughs> it out really quick. And I, I didn't like that. I'm like, finally some comeuppance for this dude because he's sort of gotten out of it easy so far. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I said, as a protagonist, he's, it is interesting. Like Usually if something bad happens to – your main character, you feel bad about it. When something bad happens to him, it's like he really deserves it. And th- this guy, Kevin Potsdorf, Harry Hardy Kruger, I really do like this guy. This is one of the performances that stood out. Is uh, he reminded me uh, a lot of a uh, little bit of uh, Christoph Waltz in Inglorious mm. Bastards, who's this kind of you know master interrogator type, and that's what this character is, Potsdorf. It's like he doesn't give him. In the narration, it says that you know the guy was in, he basically asked him two hundred questions. Because this guy's convinced. He takes one look at Barry. It's like he's a smart guy. He can see. He can, he can see into Barry a little bit. He's like, I know this guy is, you know, full of shit. And he's like, I just got to get him to say it. And sure enough, that's you know what he does. I love how the instant he messes up and says, "I'm delivering to a message to a guy that happens to be dead." He you know, he just kind. I think he just kind of takes a beat and smiles for, for a second and calls his you know lieutenant to say, "Arrest this guy. He's a liar." And exactly. then Barry's back in the mix of the war. Yeah, exactly. And what we find along the way is that Barry has fallen in with like the ruffians, but we never get to see any of that. So that's, I'm going to kind of ding this movie for that. Like sometimes the movie works if you tell it right and don't show it. Like yeah, there's, there's examples where that can work, but this one we hear he fell into the wrong crowd and picked up bad habits, but all we see him do is like be heroic in fights. Like he actually functions well inside of his regiment. He actually saves this captain at some point when the building gets shot out from under him with a cannon. He's heroic in some ways. And I'm like, is this going to be the story of the guy that got caught in the web and finally like did good or whatever, but no, uh, like any other, you know, idiot that can't get out of his own way. Barry is going to ultimately undermine his own success here. Yeah. See, it, it is almost too bad because you get to see he actually, actually, it's a pretty nice scene where, you know, he's in a, he's in a building, you know, uh, uh, in a, in a, in combat with some other soldiers. And that's actually pretty well shot. Nice little action scene. And you actually get the sense Barry's actually, he's not bad. It's too bad that he, you know, doesn't have any honor or respectability. He, if he, like, he doesn't have it in his head mm-hmm. of being a great soldier. He might actually be good at it too, but, but he, you know, he's lazy, you know. But, uh, you know, he's not completely heartless. He is a pretty, he's a bit of a bastard, but when he sees Potsdorf as, you know, he might either, you know, burn to death or suffocate or, you know, get got killed, he, you know, saves his life. And, but, you know, again, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he was doing it for the honor, but he certainly doesn't get any. Like this bit where he's, he is commended, but he's, I think they literally tell him that, that we still, we know, you know, that you're, you're here because, you know, you were caught. And you're a prisoner, and you know you're we, you know, no matter what you do, you're still going to be a loser. Yeah. And again, it's you know, it's the, the danger filled thing can't get no. No, and, but also he's not giving it either because we should say before he gets caught by the Prussians, he stops along the road trying to head to Holland, which was the neutral country at the time, and he's going through Germany, and he just basically shacks up with like this single mother German girl for a couple nights because she's willing yeah. and able, and like the the narrator really buries this this lady too. Like it wasn't the first time that that woman's heart had been opened and was a well used <laughs> bed for men coming through, and I was like, man, I was like, Kubrick really 
absolutely hated these women. It was like that was that was unnecessary. <laughs> It'd be one thing of like he saw her. And it, what would even be more interesting is if she offered herself to him because she does. You know, it's not like she doesn't want it or at least act like she does with the guy. But I think she's looking for like replacement father and husband because she pretty well knows mm, mine's probably dead because he hadn't come back in a long time now, and that's usually what that means. And so the fact that she offers herself like that. It would have been more interesting if Barry had learned something and been like, "No, I got hurt the last time I, you know, tried to fall for love, and I'm not going to do it again." And like he moved on, and just sort of left her in the dust. Like that would sort of be cold, but it would also give us a reason to root for this guy. But the fact that he just sort of like screws around with her for a few nights until he's had his fill, and then he's ready to move on, and then he goes to his next, you know, bed friend, which is the Prussian army, basically. At this point, it's like he just moves from one thing to the next, one grift to the next. Yeah, it's the old Rolling Stone, you know, uh, gathers no moss thing. I mean, that is what he is for the first, uh, you know, mm. half of the movie. Yeah, very much so. So, but he does perform some heroic acts, and because of that, he's assigned to the Minister of Police, and they basically want him to be a spy on what I'm just going to go ahead and say is my favorite character in this movie. The Chevalier hmm. uh, del Balbari, which I'm not going to say again because I'll screw it up. But the Chevalier is this <laughs> this man who's in their country and he's kind of gambling and he's they don't really know what his purpose is. They think he may be a spy. So they send Barry to him because they know Barry's Irish and this guy's also Irish and he's supposed to not speak any English and he's just supposed to, you know, stay in character. And halfway through it, he hears this man talk to him and it's like, he hears his mother tongue and he can't let it go. So he breaks down and cries in front of him. One of like the most awkwardly weird, badly acted scenes in this movie. And, you know, poor, poor, uh, Chevalier has got to try to fix that. Patrick McGee, though, by the way, great performance in this movie. I, the next to Potsdorf, my favorite thing in this movie, and he's only in it for about a half hour, but he takes pity on him and they just concoct a scheme together that like, well, okay, I'll give you enough truth that you can kind of keep them on the line, but you tell me what they're looking for and then we can kind of skirt them around together. Yeah. It's like Barry, you know, he meets this guy and he, you know, hears his, hears his voice. He gets a, He's reminded of home, and I think he sees this guy as an older version of himself, because clearly this, you know, Chevalier is like a, he's also, I mean, he's an Irishman, he probably has a, the, an identical story. He's a guy who, you know, he was Irish, and for some, and through some series of events, he's taken on this identity of a, of a Frenchman, and he sees this guy, it's like, I want to, I want to be this guy. He's like, he's going to show me the ropes of how to, uh, one thing he sees in this guy is like, well, this is a gambler who, you know, is always gambling with people in high society. So he sees this guy as a, mm-hmm. you know, as, a, as an in, yeah, into but the high thing society is, that it's creates. a great line dropped by the narration again, and I wish we didn't have this narration having to tell us anything, but the you know narrative isn't doing it, so at least we have the narration. The narration tells us that like for all their exploits, though, they didn't have a whole lot to show for it, like just enough to kind of get to the next town, sort of clean them out, then go to the next <laughs> one. And it, it, that's the sort of you get the chevaliers, like somebody who owns nothing, has a fake title, but just kind of bounces from piece to piece and always seems to land on his feet, but he also doesn't own anything. So on one hand, there's nothing tying him down, so he can always be on the move for the next you know moment. But on the other hand, there's if he ever wanted to settle down, how could he? He's got nothing to do it with. Just enough money to get by, you know? Yeah, he's like, you know, he doesn't have much money, but he does have that respect that Barry created. One thing about the Chevalier is that he's, you know, he's, he's much like Barry, he's not that tough. There's a scene where he's uh, cheating uh, in a game of poker with a guy who's played by uh, the actor who plays the German commander in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it's this scene where the guy, the German uh, lord there, he can tell that 
the Chevalier is cheating him uh, and refuses to give him the money. And of course, you know, let's say if this was a Western, someone you're playing a poker game, guy refuses to pay you, you know, you blow his brains out. But the Chevalier is cheating because Barry, <laughs> that, I, I do like that. This idea they have this, this very intricate system of if Barry touches a glass, the guy has a pair or something. If he, if he dusts a table, it means he's got, you know, yeah. queens or something. And then the Chevalier, he totally caves when the guy owes him, you know, like 10,000 uh, francs or whatever it is. He says, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Because, you know, he'll just move on to the next town, scam some other lord out of, you know, Right. And then Barry has to report back to his superiors now that, well, do you think he's going to call for the, the payment of this? And he's like, well, he's made during the day. You know, he's kind of playing it back and forth to see what happens. And they, that's when he goes back to the Chevalier and says, hey, they're going to come and arrest you when you go on your morning ride, like you always do, and escort you across the border. So if you want to get out, you know, now's the, the chance. But they did arrange to get the money from the prince. So the next morning they show up to get the Chevalier and you know, they don't have surveillance cameras in the internet. So they don't know really what he looks like. So it's just Barry dressed up with a couple pillows and his, you know, jacket. So he looks a little fatter than he is. And, and that is kind of funny. I'm like, <laughs> that's legitimately funny. Like Ryan O'Neill plays. It's like if, you know, Jim Carrey did something like that, you know, like it's, it's sort of funny and they escort him out yeah. when the Chevalier got out the night before. And now they've got a little bit of money, but that's when they, they dropped the line about, they never really have anything to show for this. And we see Barry and him having lunch together together right next to Batman Catwoman and Michael Caine and and he says you know I, I'm gonna marry for money and the Chevalier gives him this look like that's not nearly as easy as you think it is but go for it friend and then we <laughs> meet Lady Lyndon at this moment and I gotta say for all the dings I'm gonna you know nail to Kubrick's wall here about female characters and the way he treats them stuff, Marissa Berenson and what she gets to do in a very thankless role here is really good. I liked her as this woman who was in a marriage that clearly she was in it because the old elderly man doted on her. And you know, when he died, she was going to get all this land and money. And so she was playing her part and she fell head over heels for this, you know, good looking army spy guy who's running around as a gambler or whatever too. And I think she legitimately outside of his mother is the first person that actually cared for Barry in any real legitimate way. Yeah, that's true. They definitely do have a connection. And one reason is I don't think that Lady Linden is, you know, particularly smart because she doesn't, she doesn't see Barry, uh, for what he really is. Um, she, you know, sees him as this charming guy and Barry's very, very lucky that she does. And, uh, and one of my favorite characters is her son, uh, who we meet later on, Lord yeah. Bullington is, you know, no, she, he looks at him and sees exactly. Yeah, even as a kid, is. he knows what's up. But, but we, the end of part one, though, is where Barry does this whole talking down to her husband, who basically is saying, like, you're not the first one to come along hoping to get in line behind me. I know what's up. So just like <laughs> Nora, this woman's playing the same kind of game, right? Um, so we have that going on. The difference here for me, like the way I, I like this one, where I didn't like the Nora one so much, was that, 
it almost looked more real. Or she played it, at least Maria, Marissa Barry hmm. played it like it was much more real emotion, like she really felt something for Barry. But I like the way Barry responds to it. Instead of challenging the man to a duel or beating him to death or whatever you could do, he just talks to him in this real sinister tone, which Ryan O'Neill sucks still, but this is probably his best scene. <laughs> and he basically gives this man a heart attack by talking to him. And I'm like, that's some, that's some Hannibal mm-hmm. Lecter shit. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like, Again, he's always he's, he's always looking for the easy way out. It's like if this if this guy was in his forties, he would think, well, I guess I, I got to try and kill this guy. But when he sees that, you know, who knows? Maybe like he's an eighty year old man. He's on his way out anyway. He thinks, well, you know, easiest thing I can do is either hope he has a heart attack, wait him out, or I can you know get the ball rolling myself. Right now, th- I think it's totally premeditated. I think Barry knows if I just get this guy a little too excited, it's probably going to push him over the edge. And so he sets him up and the dominoes fall. And then we get to part two where we're, we were basically told like, now you're about to see this guy's life go totally out of control. Um, Cause that, that's the modern retelling of that inner title card there. Barry's now married to Lady Linden. He takes her last name. Again, that's something that's a little different. That's not something that's part of our culture necessarily, but it definitely was part of that culture. And the Chevalier is his best man and wishes him well, but he leaves and continues his own exploits. And I got to tell you, from this moment on, like, there's a charm that this movie has now lost. And this, this second half of this movie up until the very end is a really dark and ugly thing to watch. I see what you mean, and it is dark, and it is uh, it is pretty nasty. But that's actually what makes that. This is where I got hooked into the movie. At least when I'm watching it this last time, it's like I was watching it the first half. You know, it wasn't. I wouldn't say I was bored. I was. I knew what I was getting into this time. It's going to be a lot. It's going to be a really slow movie. But suddenly, with this second half, especially the relationship between Barry and the stepson, I completely forgot about that. Watching it the second time, I was like, "This is getting kind of interesting." This idea of that Barry sees, you know, in this stepson, he sees, he's like, one, it's the, it is his rival, the guy who is the next in line for this money should uh, Lady Linden die. But he also, you know, he hates, he hates him for that reason. And he also hates him because he, that this kid looks at him the way, you know, the way Captain, Captain Potsdorf yeah. does, which is that, you know, I, I can just tell looking at you, something's wrong with you. And of course, the, the, this, with, with this, this added thing of, you know, this guy killed. You know, uh, Lord Bullingdon's uh, father, and that's definitely something exactly, he doesn't like. Right, and that's the thing is, you get to see this kid and Barry have some real tense moments. I mean, there's some really uncomfortable stuff where Ryan O'Neill is horse whipping this kid. And I'm, you know, I know Kubrick movies, and again, they don't have a lot of stuff. But I'm like, I'm pretty sure one of the reasons Ryan O'Neill didn't like it was he's like, you want me to beat this ten year old kid with this thing and like do it for reals. And he's hitting him. Now they may have put a lot of padding on the kid. Probably they did the way it looked, but they're, they're whipping this dude. And I'm like, and that is some dark places to have to make your actor go to, especially one that's not stable anyway. Yeah. That, that particular moment is like, cause it comes after a scene where, uh, uh, you know, they're just, you know, they're, everyone's just talking and he says, give your, you know, give your dad a kiss and he refuses to it's like my father my father's name was whatever the you know lord linden was mm-hmm. and it's like this kid's this kid's not uh, he doesn't he's not buckling and he takes him in the back and he starts horse whipping him and it's an, it's actually echoing something we saw earlier in the prussian army where we see some soldier being put through the you know the gauntlet yeah where it's like you know 20 guys with horse whips each whip in his back so for and it is kind of sick that barry kept that in his head of and i'm going to do that to you know my 
to my not, my not my blood, but to my son. And it is it is pretty dark because he and he does it again too. Especially when he and Lady have their own son, Brian, and he absolutely just adores this kid. You know, mm. genuinely, probably the only thing Barry ever really loved outside of power and money was that kid. I think that may have been like the thing that melted his heart a little bit and made him made him somewhat of a human. But on the same light, he's still a total shit to his stepson, and he's an ass to his wife. He's basically fronting all of his exploits at this point uh you know and it's hard i mean they have a son their marriage is hardly solid he brings his mother over from ireland and she's the one that warns him of the thing that you you pointed out that he already knows like if uh, something happens to her you and your boy are going to be out on the streets you do know that right and kind of planting that seed and it, it watching it this time i picked up on something i never thought of before i was like is Kubrick trying to tell us like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree that Barry's mom was kind of a lot like him at one point, but when she had a son, she was so into him because we're told after her husband dies, she blows off all suitors to just dote on him. Is, is he trying to tell us like it just sort of runs in the family here? Yeah. In the, in, in the first chunk of the movie, she kind of just seems like a loving mother. And then in this scene where, at this point, you know, her, she is like, she's rich. She's kind of, she's kind of, you know, ruling the roost at that, at that mansion, certainly where the servants are concerned. And the actress who plays uh, Barry's mother is Mary Keene. She'd actually, she'd be my favorite uh, performance in the movie because she's really awesome at asserting control over this family that she has nothing to do with. And they all see her as an outsider, but technically they do have to listen to her. And I thought she it was, it's this great character. If they did game of Thrones in the seventies, she would have been perfect to play, you know, the, the queen of thorns. Yes. That's Diana Rigg. Yeah, no, you're exactly. I, I got a lot of that off of this too. Just for modern foretelling again. I'm like, yeah, I can, I can see it. And I think that that actually adds a little bit to the story, even though, again, I said, this is darker and it's uglier. You are right though. This is far more interesting than what we've had so far in the film, at least to me. Oh yeah, there's a, like there's an actual plot now because before it was just Barry wandering from place to pay, place, and now he's you know he's in one place. He has he has a mission, which is that this thing of he has to become he has to get like, like legally has to get nobility. So he's he's literally mm-hmm. he takes his his you know this Lord Linden's fortune and and spreads it around across you know all of England. So he has to spend all of his money to tr- in this you know pathetic attempt to get rich. And uh, that, of course, you know, drives Lord Bullington insane is that, you know, this guy, Lord Linden, built up this, you know, mass fortune for the family. And Linden is just, again, you know, spending it all at this pathetic attempt for more respect. Right. He's just basically greasing the political wheels, as it were. And he's making loans to people and he's not really pulling them back. And he's he's pulling money from this to that. And when it all starts coming due, it's really thick and it's really heavy. And then we have the coup de grace of all of it, where it completely all falls apart. We're at the birthday party. And finally, Bullington and he just have the crossest of words. And Bullington lays into him about, like, I'm done with you. I know exactly what you are. He tells his mother off about, I let this usurper in your bed, basically. And Barry loses his mind and chokes this guy, throws him all over the room. This is Leon Vitale at this point, um, who would end up, you know, working for Kubrick for years as like casting director. And he did a lot of other acting on his own, but I really liked him in this too. I thought he portrayed a lot of the hurt and the anger that he had and the way he kind of felt his mother was 
just throwing him over for this other man. Um, and when Barry loses it on him, you can see like his social status just crumble in front of you. Oh yeah. This scene, again, the second half is where I really got sucked in. And this scene is where the movie really takes like a, uh, a turn. There's like a, a very explosive scene. Like it might as well be the chestburster scene in Alien because I've seen a lot of movies set in the 18th century. But you, this is something you just like. I think Kubrick. I, I think he knew what he was doing here. Like you, this is something you just don't see in English. You know, 18th century drama is just a guy getting up in the middle of a crowd of very wealthy people. And just beating the living shit out of somebody. It's like Barry completely forgets that he is this lord. He goes back to that guy he was, you know, who threw the glass in the, the, that cabin's mm-hmm. face. And it, it go that scene goes on for a while. It's not like he just kind of loses his temper and smacks him. He just keeps pounding him because Billington just really lets him have it and tells him, you know, I know exactly what you are. You are ruining this family. You're such a scumbag. I think he, he throws some, you know, uh, uh, Irish, you know, the... British versus Irish racism his way. And that, de- that really gets, uh, to Barry. And, uh, and yeah, it's it just that scene of this, this brawl it gets really handheld in there too. All these people and, you know, probably at the time cost, you know, clothing that's each worth, you know, hundred thousand dollars worth or whatever. And some guys having a fist fight with his stepson too. It's just, it is just so, um, Ugly, but it's 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 kind of awesome too. It's just it's the kind of thing you don't see in you know uh, Amadeus. No, it's definitely not. But it it is the kind of thing that if you want to unravel your social standing in that day and age, that's a way to do it. Heck, that's a way yeah. to do it today. You know, like you can almost be forgiven for a lot yeah. of things today, but th- some things that would just cross the line for everybody. And this, I would imagine, would be almost everybody. Like if I know a lot of people hate Trump and things like that in this country, but like if he just like walked up to you know his his stepson or his son-in-law and just started beating the shit out of him on on CNN, like that would probably yeah. be the last straw for everybody. <laughs> like, no, we just can't, we can't have that. Like, you, because it's not civil, right? Like, the whole point is he wants to be part of civility and nobility and society, and you just you don't act like that. And even though everybody likes to say, yeah, those people probably really did act like that. No, they didn't. They had people do that stuff for them. That's what nobility yeah. and power really is, is I don't have to hit you. My friend Jacques over here will beat the tar out of you for $20. Done. <laughs> you know, and it, and that's it. And that's how it works. But Barry can never be that because I think what Kubrick's trying to say is you can fight up against what you really are in society and class, but society is not set up to let you move very easily between those, especially when you're doing it under nefarious circumstances. So no matter what you do, you're just going to spin that web worse and worse for yourself. And Barry certainly has. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like you said, it goes like, uh, you know, right when Barry was at a point where it's like, things could possibly go up for him. He, you know, Barry, you know, uh, Barry Lyndon turns back into Redmond Barry and, you know, he shows everyone who he really is and it kind of, uh, you kind of lose it. And there's actually, there's a nice scene later on where he's at a restaurant and he sees a guy, a lord he knows, who's sitting at a table alone. Barry's at a table alone and he says something like, can I join you or would you like to join me? And he says, actually, you know, I'm, uh, uh, even though he's sitting there alone, there's one plate, one menu. He's like, you know, actually, I'm waiting on somebody. Somebody's coming. So, uh, but thanks for offering. Mm-hmm. And like in that one scene, and Barry, he reads it on it. You, you can see it that he's reading it. It's like, I know what he's really saying. It's like, you know, no one's going to take me up on a dinner invitation ever again. And then he kind of accepts, like, yeah, this is, this is kind of going, this is, it's, it's, oh, it's, it's winding down now. And now all the bills have come due at the same time. So he has to sit there in front of his wife's accountant, you know, Graham and his wife who has to sign off on all of these things. 
You know, and it's just sort of, it's just emasculating him further and further. And I love the way that Marissa Berenson plays this. She doesn't, you know, scream at him. She's get mad at him. She's just blank to it because at this point she can tell too, like, what have I gotten myself into with this? I, but I can't get rid of him because that's not polite to do. So I'll just put up with it until I can't put up with it anymore, I guess. And she's just sort of robotically going through the motions, but you can tell there's nothing between them anymore. And if they weren't, didn't have the sun, there would be absolutely nothing. And as we are about to find out, the sun doesn't get to last because I, I mean, I, I had flashbacks to gone with the wind here where Rhett Butler buys his daughter, the pony, and then, you know, it kills her and he shoots the pony. And I was the only thing we didn't have is the, the shooting of the horse, but, uh, the kid gets thrown off the horse cause he's doing what he's not supposed to cause he's got no discipline, just like his father. And we have to go through this painstaking three days of him laying in the bed, like tiny Tim or something from a Christmas carol. It was that, that was bad. I was like, man, it, uh, that, that didn't need to go on as long as it did for me. Like if they had just wheeled him back and he would have already been dead. Then you've, you hit us in the gut. That's what we needed to stretch it out. Now you're just, now you're just messing with me. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, uh, it is, it is kind of soapy, but what it does show is that, uh, that Ryan, that, uh, that, that Barry, you know, again, like you said, like he doesn't have, he has home, he has no positive qualities except for one and that he genuinely does you know, love his son. He wouldn't want mm-hmm. any, like this one good thing in his life, uh, is taken away from him through an act of kindness. It was he's trying to get him a horse for his birthday. Pretty depressing scene. Like this kid saying, "Am I going to die?" He's like, and he's through tears saying, "No, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be fine." And then you know, passes away. And then things as if things couldn't possibly get worse for you know Barry's life and the situation. This family goes you know completely off the rails. Yeah, every he basically just goes into becoming a drunk. The wife works with the tutor who's also the reverend of the boys and, you know, tries to get deep into religion to find, you know, solace and understanding, but she's depressed and a total mess. And then the mother, Barry's mother, who's taken over kind of running everything, realizes like, we don't need the reverend here anymore because that's just another person that's going to be trying to get her to leave my son. Like he, she lays off the excuse, like we can't really afford you and we don't really need a tutor. And he's like, well, I'm clergy. You don't really have to pay me, you know, cause he knows what's up too. And he's yeah. also like her counselor at this point. And I think he genuinely one doesn't want to give up his seat of power. And two, I think he actually cares that lady Lyndon lives. He doesn't have any romantic affiliation for her, but he cares that she lives a better life. And so the Reverend gets run away and Lady Linden tries to kill herself by swallowing some poison that she didn't get enough. She just had enough to make her, you know, lose her mind in that one scene in the bedroom and tear it apart. Yeah, that yeah, that was another bit where Cooper goes real handheld and Ben where what's your name? Uh, Marissa Barronson, mm-hmm. you know like not a lot of emoting going on in this movie, but she does, you know, the, the lion's share. Yeah, she's it. definitely carrying it. And at this point, like Graham knows, like I've got to do something. And he's the family accountant. So he goes and finds the Reverend and they go to find Lord Bullington and tell him what's going on. Cause he's fled the area like gone. And, and that's a great scene of, of Bullington pacing back and forth. And he's so decisive, right? Like, this is what we're going to do. And this is how this is going to be done. And he's got it all laid out, which is a real contrast to when he actually has to challenge the guy later. And he's shaking in his boots, literally. But at this moment, like they've concocted a plan, like, well, we're going to take this house back from these interlopers, but we're going to have to do it through the sun. Yeah, again, this is and this is where the movie hooked me in even more because I forgot where it was going. 
is this idea of that the, you know the reverend and the, the accountant played by Philip Stone, who you know, one of my favorite character actors, one of the few guys who's in three uh, Kubrick movies. He's in this. He's in Clockwork Orange. He's Alex's dad, and he shows up in a great bit in, in The Shining. And this this idea of these two guys that you know they respect this family of the you know the Lindens, and they don't want to see it go under either. So they kind of go after Lord Bullingdon. They don't. I don't know if they say this, but there seems to be this sort of unsaid law. This sort of it goes unsaid in the 18th century that you can challenge a person to a duel, and there it doesn't seem to be any uh, recourse a person can take. It's a le- it's it's a trial by combat. It's a legal mm-hmm. way to kill someone. So to me, it plays off of like the Reverend and the Accountant. It's like a a very planned, gentlemanly uh, assassination on Lyndon because we can't like, there's, there's no way he'll voluntarily leave. It's like you know, it's like we could hire an assassin to kill him, but that's a little messy. So let's get someone to you know. Challenge him to a duel. Right. And Bullington says, well, it's got to be me because I'm going to take back, you know, my honor and my revenge and all this kind of stuff. So they go and they find Barry drunk in a bar, like barely able to stand up. Right. And we get a very long protracted duel scene here that I referenced earlier, allegedly took 42 days to edit. It is really long, it, but it's the most tension building piece in this whole movie. Like by far. And it's the way it's shot. It's the way the music goes. It's how painstaking they go through each piece. You know, both of the men's seconds load the pistols and you see they're still balls this time. It's the real thing or they're lead balls. Excuse me. They're lead balls this time. It's the real thing. So we, we know that, that it's going to happen. And Barry's got this look on his face, Kurt, that I can only read. It's like, I hope he does shoot me because I'd rather be dead than anywhere else in the world right now. It's like he has already given up at this point. And the way it unfolds is, of course, you know, much more dramatic. But that was one thing I'll, I'll give Ryan O'Neill credit for. I thought he actually played this scene right. Instead of going big or overacting it, I thought he played it with just the right amount of sort of resigned subtlety. Oh, yeah, this scene is like, you know, the thing about Kubrick in this period is, you know, he can't make a movie without at least one really great. So, like, at least there's one, you know, sometimes there's several, but there's always, you know, at least one scene where it's like a takeaway of, like, this is a reason to remember this movie. And I would say this dual scene, everything about it, they sort of, the, I think it's like a drum mm-hmm. beat, a military drum beat placed out through the entire thing, you know, never really a let up of the tension. And it, you know it, it is very slow, very but very Leone. It, mm-hmm. Sergio Leone, the tension keeps building and building. The, you know, a coin toss to determine who's going to shoot first this time. And this sort of, you know, uh, weird bit of reality uh, where you know the kid has clearly never touched a gun in his life, and it doesn't occur to him to take his finger off the trigger before he cocks the gun, and he he has the first shot, and he goes into the wall, and he says. Uh, I need another gun because, uh, you know, I, I kind of pull the trigger. And, they, and then everyone is like, it's very, several witnesses to make sure it goes according to plan. He's like, actually, that kind of counts as your shot. So you have to stay. He says, you got to mm-hmm. stand there and uh, take Lord Bulling, uh, wait, uh, take Lord Linden's fire. And it's a very, you know, again, human moment uh, where his reaction is, you know, he goes and throws up in the corner because he's like, I, li- I literally just pissed away a perfect opportunity to, you know, to save my family. And it's like, I just let this this guy's about to you know blow my brains out. But again, it is a great moment for for Barry as a character. It's it's the one like the nicest thing he does in the movie is you kind of thinking you know he probably does hate Lord Bullington. So I'm wondering because I forgot this scene. So I'm thinking is he going to actually shoot him? And he he just turns the gun and he shoots the wall to say you know 
Because he's like, I think at this, because after losing his son and everything, Barry's examining his life and he's like, yeah, um, this is really, this whole, my whole life has really been a waste. So if like, it's, it, he's, it's pretty much like he is suicidal. So he's telling his son, I don't think he, he doesn't say it, but he's saying it through his actions. Like, you know, how's your shot, kid? It's like, you know, I don't like you. You don't like me. Let's get this over with. Well, it's it's a couple of things I, I sort of related it to. It's the second honorable thing we've seen Barry do the whole right. time. Maybe the third. The the first was saving the captain yeah. when he didn't have to. The second was actually admitting to the Chevalier that, look, I, they've asked me to be a spy, but we're countrymen. <laughs> I can't do that. And the last one is I could kill you dead because I know I'm a good enough shot in the duel to do it, but I'm not going to because – I shouldn't have treated you that way to begin with, and I'm going to show you some mercy. And I think he, in some way, expected to get mercy back. But as we'll find out, Bullington hasn't yeah. had his revenge yet, so he gets another shot, and he shoots Barry in the leg. And, I mean, it's a pretty horrific scene when, when he gets shot in the leg. We find out, like, it shatters the bone, severs the artery. He's going to lose half the leg. It's I. It was horrific in in a, a horrific ending to what had been a pretty harrowing scene. Yeah, like like I said, I forgot where the scene was going. So I was thinking, oh, is this where like you know maybe they you know they stop and it's like a heartwarming moment. They hug it out and they say, you know what, let's let bygones be bygones. Let's you know let's just get past this. And no, he shoots him. I don't think he was. I don't think he was trying to shoot him in the leg. I, he's just a bad aim, and mm-hmm. he shoots him. I, it really is a violent thing. I you pick, I picture like you know musket uh, bullet, maybe not really having any impact force. But when he gets shot in the leg, he gets like sent back like he got hit with a shotgun, mm-hmm. and like that that must have hurt a, a lot. And then of course you know. You, at this moment of honor, there's one one respectable thing Barry does cost you know cost him his leg. Yeah, which I, I gotta say for 1975, and they do a great job of like hiding the leg and and doing all that. He limps yeah. out on a crutch, and you can only see half of it. I'm like, we ain't got computers to ink that out with, kids. That that's <laughs> done the old fashioned way, and it's a good piece of cinematography. But it's it's also a moment when we realize Barry's been literally cut down to size. You know, his mother's playing cards with him, trying to cheer him up, but he, he knows what's coming. Graham comes and says, we're going to offer you a deal to leave forever, or you can just go to debtor's prison because you ain't got it to cover it and you know it. <laughs> and well, it's still a pretty good chunk of money. Like in today's buying power, they offer him about 200 grand a year to just go away, which ain't yeah. half bad. Good work if you can get it, I guess. And what we hear is that Barry goes back. You know, to Ireland with his mother and then tries to go back into his old gambling ways, but he doesn't have his compadre there, the Chevalier, to help him. So he's never successful again. And he just kind of fades into history, he goes to the colony and just fades. You know, we don't know what happens to him after, after that point. And I, I don't know. It's an, it's an interesting sort of anticlimactic way to end his story. Um, on that note, and the last of it being the Lady Linden writing out the check for that annuity and sort of having that pause moment. And I wanted to ask you, like, what do you think she's thinking about in that moment? Well, first off, I do love this, the way Barry leaves the story, because like I said, this is a guy where you don't really want him to succeed. And in that sense, it's actually kind of a satisfying ending as he leaves with, you know, with nothing. Reminds me of this great scene in Sexy Beast, where after this super difficult bank robbery, Ian McShane says, I'll give you 10 bucks, basically, for what you did, because they got this bad blood between them. And he says, actually, I only got 20. Do you have change for a 10? 
And it's like, it's that kind of thing where it's like, you're basically, you know, everything you did for the last, you know, this mission of yours, this entire adventure of yours is going to tally up to 500 guineas mm-hmm. a month, which is a good amount of money. But he was clearly looking for hundreds of thousands and be like the richest man in England. And, you know, obviously that's not going to happen. And I love, I do like that scene where they're just, it's this thing of, she takes a long time to sign that check. Because I think she's thinking about man, that was that was really a mistake. Well, what a mess! Like, I really wasted the last couple of years of my life with this guy. But it is this perfect capper of this story. Is everything he did, the impact he had on this story, killing you know Lord Linden, you know uh, uh, fathering and 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 dealing with the death of a son, and he's just another bill payment. Mm-hmm. That's what I've heard about about what happens with the divorces. Is that at the end of the day. This person that you loved, uh, if it doesn't work out, you kind of just end up like another bill payment, like uh, the water or the power. And that's what Barry is. It's like, you know, he's a complete, he's like, he's just a bill payment. He's a total footnote in the history of, you know, the, the, the Linden house. Exactly. And as a matter of fact, they've probably done everything they can to write him out of it. Is we get the sense that, that that's probably how that ended. And then Kubrick gets the final say, though, with the title card about he's in the reign of the King George, that all these people did what they did, and they're all equal now. In other words, no matter what you chase, you're still going to wind up in the ground together. <laughs> I'm like, what a what a nihilistic downer ending, Stanley. Thanks a lot. Yep, he can't help it. That's just that's the way he's got to go. And you know, yeah. Well, I mean, look, two thousand and one ended with the Star Baby. Like that was hope at the end of that. Uh, Doctor Strange Love. At least, like we went out smiling. You know, yeah. with the bomb hitting us, right? And and Clockwork Orange. I I guess I don't know. If you were on Alex's side, I guess you were happy because I was cured, all right, or whatever. <laughs> you know, or you you felt like the government got what they deserve for trying to do something like that. And all of this that we've just spent three hours, you know, going over and on and on about with about. Guess what? They're all dead and doesn't matter anymore. The end. Yeah, it's a, it's a very emo- nah, I don't know completely you know emotionless movie, but it is a movie where you know you don't particularly get upset, or you don't particularly feel good, and it's like it's like I think it's almost like Kubrick uh, knew that he's like yeah, it's like yeah it doesn't really matter in the end. <laughs> it's almost like he's telling the audience it's like yeah you wasted your money on this one. <laughs> yeah, really. I feel the same way, Stanley. Thanks. So, well, Kurt, I think we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for Barry Lyndon? Like I said, the first time I saw this movie was 2013, and I didn't really – I didn't. I frankly didn't care for it. It took me probably a total of seven hours to watch it. I paused it, had lunch, and then went back and tried to watch it again, paused it, and had dinner. <laughs> And, uh, and I, you know, kind of wrote it off. And then it was after that, a lot of people over the years, anytime that movie did come up, people said, oh, that's actually, you know, that's like number two Kubrick movie behind, you know, Strange Love. It's like, really? And I saw the Oscars at one and some of the awards at one and IMDb, it's very highly rated. It's in the top 250 when other, you know, more, more beloved movies are not. And, uh, so if it weren't for this podcast, I'm not too sure I ever would have watched this movie again. Barry Lyndon is a very challenging movie to watch as an audience member. If we're comparing this to, say, video game difficulties here, something like Raiders of the Lost Ark would be very easy difficulty. It's incredibly easy to watch, easy to follow, very entertaining in a conventional way, like nobody's business. It's also, it's only two hours long. Barry Lyndon would be something like Nightmare Hard Mode difficult, where it's like you, you can't look away. You can't look at your phone. You can't talk to anyone while you're watching this. <laughs> and uh, 
and I learned that the first time I saw it because it was so long and so slow. Um, but you can have movies that are very long that just zip past, like you know Oliver Stone's director's cut of JFK is like th- almost four hours, and it just goes by like ninety minutes in my opinion. But this movie is, it's just glacial. It's not funny. It's not particularly exciting, aside from probably a total of ten minutes out of a three-hour movie. Not really any memorable lines all that much. Not really any likable characters, except for maybe Lord Bullingdon, or uh, depending on how you feel about uh, Lady Linden. There is nothing in this movie that makes other movies uh, great in other people's mind or enjoyable in other people's mind. Like the things that make another movie great, this Barry Lyndon doesn't have them. It's totally an acquired taste. It's not for everyone. It's like Lolita in that regard. You're either totally into that movie or it's, or it's just repulsive. But in my opinion, after, after watching this movie with fresh eyes and you know completely changed expectations, um, I like it. I don't love it. Out of Kubrick's 13 films that I've seen, this would be ranked, it's actually the same place it was, you know, this time last year, which is number 10, which is just above uh, Spartacus, which I don't really care for at all. But this time, I, I got a bigger TV than I did last time I saw it, which does help, because I really did get sucked in this movie as, as a work of art, admiring Kubrick's attention to detail and authenticity, that same attention to detail he had with science fiction in 2001, we have here with a recreation of the 18th century. The Oscar-winning cinematography by Alcott, it really is breathtaking, with those insane zoom-outs and uh, the natural lighting and these special lenses Kubrick either got or stole from NASA, specifically <laughs> developed for, you know, low-light photography in space. He uses them so like to photograph the low-light generated by candles, and those shots are you know, just gorgeous. But actually getting into the family story in the second half surprised me. Um, with how much I was getting into it. I was, you know, I was almost on the edge of my seat and then, you know, and then, then really loving that climactic final duel. So when it was over, I did finally think, okay, now I get it. It's just one, it's one of those movies that it needs repeat viewing to get past expectations. The Thin Red Line and Blade Runner were just like that for me. So I can't say I love the movie since story and characters play second fiddle to the visuals more so than other Kubrick movies. Barry himself is one of the more unlikable, more, one of the more difficult protagonists I've seen in a movie because he really is an unlikable dick with no charm. Not even that devilish charm you get in, say, a gangster movie like Goodfellas where, yeah, they're all scumbags, but, you know, they're fun to watch. Uh, Barry Lyndon takes more dedication and focus to even come close to being enjoyable, but after two tries, I think I say I like it. It's a, it's a large popcorn for me. Wow. I'm a little surprised by that rating, depending on the basis, just on the conversation we've just had. But uh, <laughs> I, I got to tell you, man, I guess from a, a cinematography appreciation point of view, like this is something to see and behold. But thematically, this is about on the level of a C-rate episode of Dynasty. Um, and, and that's not a bad thing. Sometimes simplicity is okay, you know, and, and in the hands of different performers, or maybe if it had been put together differently, it might work. I'm, I'm curious to know how much of Ryan O'Neill's big complaint is true is that all the narration is what ruins the movie in his opinion. Cause it took out all the dialogue and stuff. And I'm like, well, the reason Kubrick did that is cause he thought you flubbed all the lines, which Kubrick made everybody flip all that. So who who knows who's right or wrong in that situation. But 
I don't know that he could have carried it, honestly. So if it weren't for the narration, I would have honestly been asking me, like, what the hell does any of this mean? Because it's just sort of scene to scene to scene, and they don't really start connecting to the second half of the movie. And you're right, the second half is is the better half, even though I said it was uglier and darker. It is the better half of the movie. But I don't think you could come into that having not sat through the first half of it. And for me, man, the first half is just, it is a slog. It is hard to get through. And it's hard to find anything enjoyable outside of just the artistic aesthetics. And for me, this one is right there on the bottom with Lolita for me in terms of just like watchability and rewatchability and getting anything (laughs) from it. I just, I don't think I'll ever watch it again, honestly. Maybe get talked into it again (laughs) at some point down the line, but... If I want to watch a Kubrick movie, man, and I don't want to watch you know, the big ones or whatever, I can I can find something else that in his catalog I think yeah. still to get to. And I'm saying that it's on the bottom with with three films to go, two of which I know I have some real questions about coming up. But I got to tell you, <laughs> this one for me just didn't work on any level, um, and, and outside of just pure artistic expression. So, but so for the artistry of it. I'm going to give it a medium popcorn, but it's that same kind of damning praise medium popcorn I use often for movies that I think had potential to do things and then just <laughs> failed, you know, for whatever reason. And this was a miss for him. It didn't get the big hit. You know, it got some critical acclaim, but this was in 1975 before it became cool to like nominate and elect movies to win awards that didn't make any money. Now, like we have to do that every year. It's like the less money and more artistically interesting your movie is, the more likely it's going to win best picture. And if you make a billion dollars, screw you, you're not going to get anything. You know, I mean, that's, that's how the Oscars have gone now. And I'm not saying Avengers deserves the Oscar, but you follow what I mean. Um, this one, this one's in that pile for me, and I just don't know that I'll ever go back to it. So I'm going to give it the medium popcorn, but as far as just like on the Kubrick scale, well, I got, I, I don't, I don't like this one at all. And Lolita's just uncomfortable and weird and wrong in all kinds of levels. Even then it was, and it still is now, even more so. This one is just boring. And it's badly acted. And in the end, I can listen to classical music and look at some French paintings, Kurt, and I feel like I get the same thing. <laughs> and so that's where I, I fall on Barry Lyndon. Yeah, like I said, it's it really is an acquired taste. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't even try recommending this movie to someone because I would say, you know, I would say, well, in order to watch it, you gotta watch it twice. So you gotta book two separate occasions of three hours. Like even I like even while I was enjoying it, I had to take a break. Halfway through, just just to, I went on a balcony, read a Grant Morrison Batman comic, just to clear my head a little bit, and it was like, and then I got back into it. But it's like, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's certainly not for everyone. It's not for most people. This movie, yeah, definitely. Though the next one we're coming upon in the Kubrick retrospective is made for everybody. All right, and yeah. at least, especially if you like thrillers and horror movies and Stephen King, even though Stephen King hates the friggin' movie, it's time to talk mm-hmm. about The Shining and Kurt. It'll be the third time on a podcast I've reviewed The Shining in my podcasting career. You can go back nice. in the archives when Nick and I were doing the selective works of Stephen King. We did an episode on The Shining. You can listen to it there. I I was on an episode of a a podcast that's now defunct. I don't think you can get it anymore out there. It was called Dead as Hell. Um, It was like a horror movie podcast, and the the host had me on to talk about Shining. We talked about all things Shining, the book, the movie, the miniseries, all the stuff, but really talked a lot about the movie. And 
I thought, okay, so at some point, because you and I had started the Kubrick retrospective at that point, I said, at some point, I'm going to have to move, review this movie for the third time. And I, how's that going to work? Now, <laughs> I've, I've put you know several years between the reviews, so I think that's going to help a little bit because you know I did the the original Kubrick review back in 2012 with with Nick. I did that one with. Um, the Dead as Hell podcast with like maybe 2014, 2015. So it's been a few years since I've reviewed it, but I'm curious to you know, see, can I find something different to say about it um, going forward next time? But uh, that's a big one coming up for us here next for Kubrick. And then, then we got two to go after that. Yeah, it's, it's it is going to be, I'm looking forward to this next one because we're going from the Kubrick movie. No one, several people probably need, don't, haven't even heard of it to Possibly the one uh, people have seen the most. The Shining wasn't that accepted at the time, but it's become one of the most influential and watched and beloved uh, horror movies of all time. And uh, yeah, I'm always looking for an excuse to talk about that. Oh yeah, it's gonna be a fun, gonna be a fun time, and folks, you can follow it all here at the Filmstrip Podcast. Go to filmstrippodcast.com. You'll see our entire archive section there, as well as all the platforms where you can download the podcast. If you download the show, please do share it with folks on social media and leave us a positive review, as it always helps bump the show up and other people to find it. We're growing the audience back here. We really appreciate the support. Uh, Kurt, tell folks how they can uh, keep up with you and what you're doing on uh, the internets these days. Well, you can find me on the Fabish Factor Film Group on Facebook, where we get into discussions very much like the one we just had. There's the Fabish Factor Film Podcast, which is on a uh, bit of a break right now, but I'm just looking for a good reason to get back into that. And you can also look up my reviews on uh, letterboxd.com, where I try to write a review of pretty much everything I've seen at this point. I don't know when this is being released, but at this point I just went through a series of uh, LGBT-themed films for uh, Pride Month in June. Uh, and uh, someone's going to be challenging me to something in uh, July, so we'll see how that goes. But that's where you can find me. Of course, folks, you can follow the show on Facebook. Just look for Filmstrip Podcast or follow us on Twitter at Filmstrip Pod. We appreciate interacting with you and look forward to talking about some more movies in the future. So until next time, for Kurt, I'm Jay. You've been listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.